You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I'm Jonathan Leinball. I have just begun at Beeson Divinity School. I have for the last seven years and sort of still am. I'm a, I have two jobs right now for one more month. I'm also at the University of Cambridge, wrapping that up. So my family and I have been in England for seven years. And we are now here in Birmingham and very happy to be. As I mentioned last week, and I just mentioned it again because some of you have been asking, our belongings are not yet in Birmingham. They are somewhere near Bermuda, I think, um, which I wouldn't mind being there, but I would just like to be where they are. So um, we don't really know when they're coming, but sometime in September, I think we will have things. What that really means still is that I don't have my books. My son says, I really want my bed. I think, who needs a bed? I don't have my books. And I was listening to that uh, Simon and Garfunkel song, I Am a Rock, which says, I have my books and my poetry to protect me. And I thought, well, exactly. (laughs) That's that's how I feel. And now I have to go teach here at Beeson. Now I don't really have my books. So that's a kind of footnote and disclaimer. I might be making most of this up. I'll probably (laughs) quote lots of things. I have not consulted it. This is just my memory. And we were actually told when I started working at Cambridge, you have to be really careful about sort of what you say and what you do publicly because the British press loves the headline, University of Cambridge professor, fill in the blank. And they'll even do it to your family members. So a good friend of mine had University of Cambridge professor's husband found locked in closed bookstore. And there's a sort of picture of him pressed against the glass and he can't get out. And he was just, you know, absolutely. So I'm sort of aware still that when I don't have my books and my poetry to protect me, but I'm still going to pretend like I do, you never know what will happen. All right, disclaimer. Now, this is week two of three weeks we're going to have together. Next week, I'm off at a decent faculty retreat, which I'm looking forward to, and then I'll be back Uh, for the third week. And we're looking at Galatians 2, especially verses 16, 19, and 20. And what we did last week is we tried to think with Paul about the honest human situation that the good news comes to, as what the prayer book calls a comfortable word. But we wanted to look reality in the face, the kind of reality that we so often feel, but don't always face. We tried to look at it. And one of the reasons I wanted to do that is I'm convinced that one of the things, maybe the thing that's so compelling about the Christian gospel is that it is both honest about life as it actually is experienced as we live it. And yet it has a word of hope that is deeper and stronger and more lasting than the pain and the suffering. So we can look it in the face, and then we can hear a good news that raises the dead and forgives sin. And it's that combination of honesty and hope that I'm hoping these three weeks bring together. I think the gospel is most alive when that comfortable word, the word of mercy in Jesus' name, lands in the open wound of actual living. And I was reading recently... um, a guy who was a psychiatrist and a theologian in England in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And he wrote this very strange but wonderful book called Clinical Theology. And his name was Frank Lake. And he said, at some point in everyone's life, and in most people's life at many points, 
circumstances occur that force people to, to rage or to weep or to fear life and reality. And what makes all the difference is at that moment of question and fear and pain and despair, when the curtain is pulled back, do you find the creator of the universe contently indifferent or crucified upon a cross? That's the decisive difference. And in Galatians 2, we're given room to be honest about what life feels like. But the curtain gets pulled back in Paul's letter. And what we find is not a God who is indifferent, but a God who is crucified on the cross. And I'm hoping that that kind of encounter will happen in our time. So I just want to pray very briefly and ask that God will do those two things through God's word. So Father in heaven, would you please do two things? Would you show us that we need Jesus? And would you please give us Jesus? In his name we pray. Amen. All right. So last week, what I really tried to do, I had basically one point, which I made in 35 minutes. I'm aware that that's what happened. And I said lots of things, but I basically had one point. I wanted to offer us a theological definition of what it's like to be alive under the conditions of sin and death. What it's like to be what the Bible calls a sinner that needs the grace of of God. And I basically said that we were living a life that was actually a kind of death. And I'll recap that in just a moment. But that was the kind of surprise. This week, you'll be happy to know, instead of talking principally about death, we're going to talk about life. The only problem, it's not really a problem, the only problem is that the way you get from death to life according to the Christian gospel, is by going through death, not around it. Paul's going to say, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And it's on the other side of that death that we'll hear, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're going to get to life, but we're going to have to go through death with Christ. And that's what we hope to do today. But I want to talk a little bit about this meeting point. I said last week that Paul is an apostle. He's a preacher of a double revelation. He says that two things are revealed by God's word. The first revelation, or the first apocalypse, as he calls it, is of human unrighteousness. That's Romans 1.28. God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness of human beings. The first thing that is revealed is our need and our complicity and captivity in a world of sin and death. But the second thing that's revealed, Paul says, is the righteousness of God, which is revealed, according to Romans 3, 21 and 24, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And it's this collision of our need with the mercy of God, that's the miracle of grace. It's captured beautifully in a poem. Could be making this up, remember. But I think this is captured beautifully in a poem by W.H. Auden called The Time Being, which is his Christmas poem. And he says there, capturing both the extent of our need, but the miracle of the mercy of God, he says, 
Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. And I hope we heard that a little bit last week, that nothing that is possible can save us, that what we actually need is the miracle of God's grace. What I hope we hear this week and in two weeks' time is that that miracle has become reality in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Something beyond what is possible, the grace of God, has become the gift of God for you in Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at. And the reason I want to do it this way and kind of live with the honesty, and you can tell I'm hesitating to let the kind of honest moment go and just get to the good news, is because I've just become impatient with understandings of the Christian good news that sidestep or pole vault over the realities of human living. Right? There's, a, there's a phrase that was sometimes used by Lutheran theologians that there's a tendency to want to pole vault over Good Friday and just live at Easter. But the passage we have today in Galatians 2 is about Good Friday. I have been crucified with Christ. And so I'm always trying to ask, is the good news actually strong enough for the realities of human life? Because if it's not, I don't actually think what we're doing here is worth it. But if it is, then we should be shouting it from the rooftops. And I don't really see a middle ground. And I felt this very poignantly the first time I read a book that was written in the 1900s by a guy who was a reporter at Parliament. That was his day job. He once was walking by Somerset House where he worked with a friend. And he said, I worked there for 40 years. His friend said, oh, I didn't know that. He said, yeah, I didn't really like it. And then they just kept walking. So that was how he thought about his career. (laughs) But he would then go home in the evening And his wife almost certainly had a form of MS, which was really hard to treat or manage. And he would just care for her, finally get her to bed. And then from roughly midnight to three in the morning, he would write novels where he kind of tried to work out his questions. Because this man, whose name was William Hale White, had actually been training for ministry when he got kicked out of seminary because he was asking some theological questions. And he could never quite hold on to the core of Christianity but he could never quite let it go either. And he wrote this book called The Revolution in Tanner's Lane. He wrote it under the name Mark Rutherford because he didn't really want anyone to know who he was. He writes this book and he has a character named George. And George, he says, grew up in the same kind of tradition he did, the sort of chapel tradition of England. Think John Bunyan, if that means anything to you. And he tells us that George has never had a religious doubt in his life. He's just grown up with the content of Christianity and the culture of Christianity, and he's always just assumed it's true. But then we meet George the first time where the circumstances of life have become hard enough where he actually has to wonder if the content and the culture of Christianity that he grew up with is worth anything. It's sort of tested by the fires of living. Because what happened was George sort of married uh, the girl he had always desired. They got married, 
and it just wound up being an actual marriage. It wasn't particularly bad. It wasn't particularly fairy tale. It was just two actual human beings, which is described with some humanity. And George was surprised that he had married an actual human being, and so that was a little hard. Um, and then they have a child, and he was surprised that that is slightly difficult, wonderful, but you know, exhausting and confusing and very revealing of things about yourself that you'd rather not see or know. And right at a moment where things are tense in the relationship, especially with George and his wife, there's an accident in the house that seriously injures George's wife, and she actually winds up dying as a result. They do have a, a moment of very meaningful and real reconciliation before she dies, but then George is left living on the other side of it. And this is the line that we get from Mark Rutherford or William Hale White in the novel. He says, in those dark three months after the tragedy, the gospel that George had grown up with did nothing for him. He says, surely it is a great charge to bring against a religious system if in the wars that the sons of Adam have to wage against the ravages of real life, they are equipped with neither weapons nor armor. Surely a real religion should have some store of comfortable truths. But if it can do nothing for us in our actual suffering and questions, of what value is it? I've never shaken that paragraph. I think if you hear that paragraph and look at it in the face, the only possible answers are the Christian gospel either is of no value in relationship to life's deepest questions and hardest realities, or it's what the gospels call the one thing needful. It's a kind of diamond thread of hope that will not burn in the fires of living and dying. And it's this diamond thread that I think Paul points to in Galatians 2. What we saw last week is that something strange is going on, and I gave you a kind of parade of confused theologians as they read Paul's confession. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, Paul says. And you got people like Martin Luther saying, this is strange and unheard of. And you got people like Albert Schweitzer saying, inconceivable. You've got this great 20th century New Testament theologian, E.P. Sanders, saying, Paul seems to actually believe that we were crucified with Christ. I confess I have no idea what that means. It was this kind of catalog of confusion. But one of the things that's clear is that our assumptions about the order of life and death get reversed. According to Paul, it's not that you live and then at the end you die. It is if... As he says, through the law, I died to the law in order that I might live. And if I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live so that the life I now live, it's that death comes first and then life is what is on the other side. And I tried, and this is where I felt like I wasn't particularly succeeding, but maybe something resonated with you. I tried to offer some description of what this life that is a kind of death actually feels like for some people. 
I talked about the students I've known for a long time who feel like they're carrying a double weight. They're both trying to carry the weight of the world and its seemingly insurmountable problems of justice and ecological crisis and war and economic collapse. And at the same time, they feel like they're having to carry the weight of their own worth, that they have to create and sustain and present their dignity, their significance, their value, their meaning. And they are exhausted. And that exhaustion has turned too often into tragedy. I told you about the University of Pennsylvania. I talked about the University of Cambridge, where that tragedy has taken the form of students simply not being able to take it anymore. And lives have ended because of the weight of the world and of their own worth. And I quoted from uh, Will Storr, who said, people are literally suffering and dying under the weight of the fantasy self they're trying and failing to become. We're trying to look and feel that reality in the face. But I tried to give it a kind of theological definition, too. I tried to say that what this is, is this kind of death or life under sin, the way Paul describes it, is it's living life with the judgment on our life, the verdict on our life, the value of our life, still in the future. And the basis for what that judgment will be, the measure of the value of our life or our significance or our worth, is all the things that are true about us, the life we live, what we've inherited, what we've achieved, our pedigree or our performance becomes the units of measurement that will then be added up to our value. Right? So the Book of Common Prayer calls the things done and the things left undone. Add them up and we'll find out what you're worth in the end. And you don't know yet. Okay, so this is life with death and judgment ahead of you. But what we hear from Paul is that even though that is what it's ordinarily like to live in this world of sin and death, that is not actually what the gospel reveals to be the deepest reality. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So just as I gave you a theological definition of death, life with death and judgment ahead of you, let me try a theological definition of life, and then we'll try to put some flesh on those bones as well. But if death is waiting and wondering what the judgment on your life will be on the basis of your inheritance and achievement, then life is living with death and judgment behind you rather than ahead of you. It's not living wondering what God will see and say to you at final judgment. It is hearing on the basis of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus what God has already said and is saying to you in Jesus' name now. This was captured very well in one phrase by 
a German theologian. So this is thinking, yes, I'm sure this is going to change my life. But stick with me. It's a one-sentence one summary phrase of this. That if you can sort of get the idea and let it sort of leach onto your bones is the difference between fear and peace. And he said this. What Paul proclaims and what say, the Protestant Reformation heard again was that the judgment on our life is not an uncertain goal but the stable basis i'll say that again the judgment on your life what god sees and says when he looks at you is not an uncertain goal but it's actually a stable basis because it has already been spoken And it has been spoken, not on the basis of what you have done or haven't done, or will do or won't do, but on the basis of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. This is the beating heart of Galatians 2. And this is why, before saying, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul has said in Galatians 2.16, that a human being is not righteous before God by doing the things that the law commands, That would be life with judgment ahead of you on the basis of what you do. That's not how a person is righteous. But a person is righteous through faith that receives what God has done in Jesus Christ. The image is kind of like this. Maybe some of you will have heard this before, but I need to hear it again, so I'm going to say it to myself and you can listen. The image is kind of like this. You picture a scene of final judgment. And anytime Paul is using righteousness language or justification language, that's, that word takes you to that scene. Okay? In Paul's world, to say righteous or God is righteous or justification takes you directly to a scene of final judgment where God is the judge. And what will he say and on what basis will he say it? And the first ordinary way to imagine that scene is to think that you sort of wait nervously in line with all the kinds of anxieties and emotions that that would come. You're kind of wondering how public is this going to be? Is my mother going to see what happened? All kinds of things going on. And you get up there in a, I don't know, whatever sort of will connect more with you. For some people, it's a video of your life going on the screen. For some people, it's the kind of opening of a book and someone reads your biography. And all of your thoughts, all of your words, All of your deeds, all of the things done and left undone are presented, are read. It's just real life. You don't have to pretend it's worse than it is. It's just your actual life. I think there's probably sufficient material there to be proud of and otherwise. This is the understatement you learn when you live in England for a long time. This is why the prayer book says things left undone. Fill in the blank. Right? So... Your actual life is seen, read, and on the basis of that, the holy judge, the creator of the universe, renders a verdict. I'm not going to ask you to imagine what the verdict would be. I'm just saying that that's what it would mean to be righteous on the basis of works of the law and to live with judgment as an uncertain goal on the basis of your life. But picture the scene slightly differently, because this is what Paul actually says. 
you come to the same scene, you wait in the same line, the book is opened, and a life is read. But as you pay attention to the details of the life, while you are being judged, you're surprised slightly because you don't remember being born among animals to a virgin. You don't remember sort of leaving your parents and going to the temple when you were 12 years old and that's scaring your mother. You don't remember being baptized by John in the Jordan and spending 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness and calling 12 disciples to follow you and ascending a mountain, a mountain, and teaching. You don't remember exactly being betrayed and tried and crucified under Pontius Pilate, but this is the life that's being read as the evidence at your judgment scene. And then the nails are driven through your hands and feet and the clouds come and the sun stops shining and the earth shakes and the person dies and they are dead and buried but the grave cannot hold the one who creates life and three days later the stone is rolled away and the grave is empty because the grace of God always empties the grave and hope is always possible when the hope is in the one who raises the dead And on the basis of that life, from Christmas through Good Friday to Easter, God looks at you and says, you are my beloved child, and you I am well pleased. You are righteous. And this is what Paul describes as life. Not wondering and waiting what God will say, when he sees you in the future on the basis of your life. That's death. And it feels like anxiety. It feels like exhaustion. It feels like competing and comparing constantly. It feels like loneliness. And too often and tragically, it keeps taking the form of self-harm and suicide in this world. That's death. That's not life. Life is what God says and sees when he looks at you has already been spoken in Jesus' name. Righteous, enough, loved, forgiven, pure, mine, beloved child, holy, wanted, known. That is who you are in Jesus' name. And that is what God is saying. And that is what it means to be alive. And according to Paul, surprisingly, but mercifully, the road from one to the other, from death to life, is the death of Jesus Christ. We don't go around death, but death does get defeated Not by what you have to do, but by what God has done for you in Jesus. You have been crucified. You no longer live. You have died. But because Christ was crucified and Christ died. Do you know that poem by George Herbert called Death? Where he starts out and he says, Death, you once were nothing, 
but a bag of bones, the sad effect of sadder groans. But then there's a change. He says, but since my Savior's death has put some blood into your face, you have grown fair and full of grace. Death has been defeated and transformed by death, the death of Christ. And we go from being dead, wondering what the judgment on our lives will be, to being alive with death behind us and with judgment behind us, hearing what the judgment on our life is in Jesus' name. This is why Augustine, I mentioned this last week, and I just like this phrase, um, so I'm just going to share it again. But this is why Augustine, when he was sort of confused and interested in this passage, said, if we're going to describe what Paul's doing here when he confesses, I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, basically I have to say this is a whole new way of talking. It's a whole new genre. He called it the speech of the dead. He said, this is the way you talk if you have already died. And he basically says, if we are going to speak the language of faith and live in the freedom of the gospel, we're going to have to learn this new language. We're going to have to talk like those who have already died. Because, however bizarrely it sounds, we have. And once you start getting attuned to that, you find out it's not just a sort of strange quirk that Paul has. I mean, Paul does say this a lot in his letters. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, one died for all, therefore all died. He says in Romans 6, do you not know that all of you who have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death? Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. It's all over Paul, but it's not just Paul. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it cannot bear fruit. All over the Old Testament, we find out that what needs to happen is that the heart of stone needs to be removed and a heart of flesh needs to be given. That circumcision is not a matter of flesh, but of the heart. And again and again, the image of the Bible is not about people getting slowly better or even sick people getting healed. It's about dead people being raised. That's the image of change in the Bible, death and resurrection, Good Friday and Easter, from nothingness to creation, from darkness to light, from despair to hope, from weeping to laughter, all because of what God has done in Jesus. Which brings me to the sort of basic point I want to make. This is the way I want to say this good news. I've been sort of talking around it, but it all really comes down to this. If death takes the form of every I having to carry this double weight, the weight of the world and the weight of our own worth, then what does life really come down to? And in two weeks, we're going to talk especially about how Paul uses the language of I. And our basic question in two weeks will just be, how do we answer the question, who am I? Like this big question of identity um, that so many people are asking. How does Paul help us think about it? On what basis would we provide an answer to the question, who am I? And I hope that will be helpful. But today, I just want to hear the distinction between 
a life in which I, and I can mean you, and you, and me, in which every I has to carry, has to create, often in this world has to curate and compare our self and our worth. This is the life of death in which we have to carry it. Do you remember that line from Thornton Wilder last week? When a human person is made to bear more than a human can bear, what then? My whole hope last week was just just say, on our own, life as it's given east of Eden and apart from the grace of God in Christ is more than we can bear. And the signs and the symptoms of that weight and burden are everywhere around us. And in our moments of honesty, they're also inside of us. But then Thornton Wilder says, when it's too much to bear, what then? And this week we're starting to turn to the what then. What do we say? So if we cannot carry this weight, if the life of sin and death is a life in which I have to carry the weight of the world and I have to carry the weight of my own worth, then what is life? What does the gospel that raises the dead say? And what it says is that to those who are overburdened and overwhelmed by the failed attempt to create and to carry our own belovedness, and dignity and value to those who cannot carry this weight, which is to say to each and every son of Adam and daughter of Eve. What the gospel says is, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because the one who offered that invitation comes not just to say you can do it and to give you a little help so you can continue to carry a burden you cannot bear. With those words, come unto me, Jesus comes and takes and puts the weight of your worth and the weight of the world on his shoulders, and he carries it. And because we are not righteous on the basis of our attempts to carry this weight, but on the basis of what God has done for us in Jesus. It means that the one who said, come unto me, is also the one in whose name God has said to you. And right now, this minute, this morning, is saying to you the final judgment on your life. It has been spoken. And therefore, in Jesus' name, I can speak it to you. You don't have to wonder what God sees and says. In Jesus' name, God has said and God is saying, You are my beloved. In you, I am well pleased. You are enough. Your sins are forgiven. You are a holy, wanted, known child of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. 
Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.